Welcome to the show. If you live in a big city like I do, it's easy to overlook a homeless person. They're often drug addicted or mentally ill and sometimes dangerous. And so it's natural to want to avoid them. But what would you do if some of those homeless were veterans with PTSD? I'm Greg Crino. I'm a former fighter pilot and a lawyer. And the mission of this show is to help you gain a deeper understanding of the law and war by presenting the stories and lessons of those who fight in those arenas. My next guest saw the problems of homelessness and veteran suicide and wanted to fix them. He's an ordained minister and the founder of PTSD Foundation of America, David Malsby. In 2009, David began the mission of the foundation by walking the streets of Houston and reaching out to homeless veterans one at a time. To date, the foundation has helped thousands of veterans restore their relationships, find employment, and ultimately find hope and heal. David also has a radio show called Road to Hope, which provides practical advice to veterans and their families. You can follow David and donate to the foundation at ptsdusa.org. And with that, please welcome David Malsby. So how's your morning going? You're out there in Houston? I am in Houston, Texas. It's a little cool for us right now, though I'm okay. sure a lot of people are fine with that, though it is a sunshiny day and the skies are blue, so no complaints here. Yeah, you can kind of get some good weather and bad weather in Houston. It's The highs are high and the lows are low, I think. We had some uh, pretty extreme weather a couple of days ago. Tornadoes coming through town, which is a little unusual for one to hit the ground here. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we're grateful for blue skies today. Good. Yeah. We're, we're having the same thing out here in LA. We had some bad weather the last few days and today it's like 70 and sunny. So nice to get outside after this. Yeah. Yeah. But Hey, let's talk about your mission here. So PTSD foundation of America. And can you kind of go into how you started it? Because it, it seems like it happened very organically. The entire organization has certainly been organic in its uh, nature. Uh, we began in 2009, really just hitting the streets here in Houston, Texas, trying to see who we could help. And honestly, our goal was very, very simple. Just let's see if we can save one life. And uh, that was all drawing from statistics at the time. Here in Houston, one out of every three adult homeless persons was a military veteran. I think the VA at the time was saying we were losing like something like 14 veterans a day to suicide. And those numbers have kind of gone all over the place. And we can talk about that later. But uh, we were just trying to make an impact there. And so we hit the streets of Houston, trying to find veterans who were struggling, you know, what's going on? How can we help you? And uh, through that, we just started working one-on-one -on -one with some veterans with their PTSD. And then after we got a few guys that were helping at the same time, we began our first, what we call warrior groups. And those began to happen here in the Houston area. And those are spread to uh, different cities across Texas and a few cities across the country, including um, just outside of L.A. But we've been trying to just find guys who are in the most critical space with the goal of keeping them alive for one more day. Basically, the concept was if we can keep them alive through this momentary crisis, then we can start working on what led up to that momentary crisis. And let's start building a plan to, to not have those events happen again. Now, was it a, a desire to help the homeless that caused you to walk the streets and then you later discover that it was a veteran problem or was it more that you were seeking out veterans to begin with? Like which one came first? 
So it's veterans. That's our niche, combat veterans. So it's a really small niche of the population. But that was who we were trying to help. That was the kind of the low-hanging fruit, finding those guys that were homeless and starting there because, you know, we were just starting. Nobody knew us. Nobody had ever heard about us. So we were just trying to let's help somebody. And then once we actually start helping somebody, then we can start getting the word out. We're here. We're doing this and we want to help more. Okay. And you have a, a ministry as well. So you're a minister. So that's that was sort of the context that you started seeking out or trying to help guys. Was that correct? Yes. So my, I've been a pastor okay. for a number of years. Sure have. Okay. And then, uh, so wow. So it's a, th- a third of who you came across were veterans. That's high. It well, it was staggering. High. Of course, you think back to 2009, we yeah. were still pretty hot and heavy in the what was known at the time as global war on terrorism. But guys were starting to come home. In fact, you know, guys have been coming home since 2003. So those homeless numbers, which people just kind of assume, well, that must be the Vietnam vets. Well, by and large, yes, but no, there were plenty of 22, 23, 24-year-old guys that had come home and had already burnt every bridge they possibly had with anybody that would let them couch surf and they're homeless. An actual psychological, well, I guess, you know, PTSD would be the psychological illness, but I guess my question is, you know, what ratio of it was sort of chemical dependency and what ratio of it was sort of a social psychological problem? Well, in the vets that we were helping, it was a combination of the two, almost a hundred percent of the time, not completely. Yeah. They go hand in hand. It yeah, seems. Absolutely. And it's, that's true across the whole spectrum of homelessness. There's the main driver there is mental health and addiction. So what we deal with those, those aren't necessarily our prime goals per se, but it is mm-hmm. part of what we do. Other than the Vietnam guys that got drafted, and even after that, to some degree, you know, they're a veteran. They have a service mentality. That's just what drives them. So why many of them come home and go into law enforcement or first responder uh, field, because they just have the desire to serve and to help others. So once I was able to start working with a few individuals and helping them experience some real life change, they automatically, like, how can I help? So Mm. that's how the growth began, was the veterans that we were able to help wanted to turn around and share that same, the same things we were sharing with them with, with other veterans. Wow. So it's almost like you were the initial spark and then that started the fire and it's, it's growing on its own now. That's that's, that's remarkable. That's very (laughs) remarkable. I will tell you this. Once they got involved in starting to help the brothers. Yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely fire. It was on them. Once they got involved, things started to happen pretty rapidly because what would take me sometimes several weeks or a few months just to gain a guy's trust. You know, when another veteran's sitting down with them, as soon as they tell them where they've been and what they've done, they have immediate trust. So it was a big game changer as soon as that first veteran said, hey, how can I help my brothers? So it it all falls back on them. They're the ones that get all the credit for that. Did you have a, a vet background? Were you a veteran or did you have a family member who was? I mean, how did you gain their trust initially? Because it seems like if you just some guy comes up to you and he's, he's not a veteran, you are, there could be like a, 
a bridge or a, a gap there that you have to bridge. It definitely took some work to gain yeah. their trust. And no, I'm a civilian, never been in the service. You know, I worked for a Marine that lost his legs in Vietnam. I worked for him for about 10 years and traveled the country with him, met a lot of a lot of veterans, heard a lot of stories. But no, I had to work quite diligently to earn their trust and truthfully mm -hmm. to really start talking to them about the mental health issue of PTSD and those symptoms. I had to help them, had to, and this is where I built the team of support. We had to deal with the immediate issue. So for instance, one veteran was living in a, in a mobile home here in Houston, had no insulation in it, had no air conditioning in it, had a big hole in the exterior of the home. And he was raising his two kids in this. So you just think it's a big metal box in the middle of Houston and 104 degrees outside, no air conditioning. And by the way, there's this massive hole. So we helped him with patching that up, bringing in a little bit of insulation and a, you know, an air conditioning unit to make it at least a little bit more livable than it was. So once we helped him with that, first of all, he saw we weren't just, you know, saying things and not willing to do things. We started by helping him with the initial crisis moment. And then we were able to earn the trust with him to let's talk about what's really going on. How did you get here? So that's yeah. kind of how it worked in those earlier days. How long would that take? I mean, it seems like it would take a lot of effort to yes. gain somebody's trust who's been through what he had been through. Yes. Well, and he had deployed, he'd actually deployed, his first one was in Vietnam, and then he had deployed all the way up into the OIF invasion. So he had served for many, many years, both served in both the Army and as a Navy CB. He had a lot of experience and he had a lot of trauma. And mm -hmm. uh, it definitely took a while. I joke with him now. He lives down in Rockport, Texas, but I joke with him now. He was the angriest individual I think I've ever met in my life. He was an angry dude when we first met him. But uh, mm -hmm. over time, we were able to see some some great change in his life. Wow, was he angry at the at the army, at He's the military, angry at or everything, just everything? Everyone, everything. Yeah, oh God, God, the military, everything. And when we came home, his wife at the time, as soon as he got home, left. She said she had done her job while he was gone. Now it's his turn. She just left, and so Ooh. yeah, it was a brutal chain of events over multiple years that led him to that anger. There was a lot going on there. And it that took a while, even after we started working with him, it took a while to get him into a, a better mental health state. But fortunately, he's a very happy man now. He's getting pretty old and uh, some uh, other things are happening physically, but he's a dear friend. How many of them have like marketable skills that are outside the military? Because I do get concerned that, you know, guys get in the military and you know, it's great. It's, I've enjoyed my 20 plus years, but there are certain jobs in the military that just don't translate well on the outside. And so guys get home and then they go, oh, I used to defuse bombs. And you know, there's no civilian company or few civilian companies that they'll, they'll go, okay, you're a brave guy, you're smart, but you know, we don't have a spot for you. Did you find that there were some guys that were just frustrated in that they couldn't find work? Was that a huge factor or was it more like just family, and just other other issues? Work was definitely an issue. The United States, yeah. through you know our history and bringing guys home from war, there's been different initiatives to get 
those men and women employed after they came home. There wasn't that strong of an initiative when these guys came home, and many of them did struggle. But that's where other organizations, this is what they do. This is something that we do kind of on the side as we help these guys transition back into the world after they've come into our programs. Is Yes, you know, you know how to blow stuff up, and that doesn't translate well on a resume. But there are other things from your service, your leadership skills and all those types mm-hmm. of things that are, you know, something that does look good on a resume and does intrigue employers. So it's just kind of helping them learn how to mm-hmm. translate what they did in the military into the civilian context. And we do that. And then we partner a lot of that out as well. But yes, that okay. was an issue with guys coming home because they felt like, you know, honestly, while they were there, they were responsible for, you know, X number of guys' lives to their left and to their right, which, you know, that's about as purposeful as life gets. But many of them were also operating, you know, multi-million dollar pieces of equipment. And mm-hmm. then they come home and they're just Joe and, you know, they don't want to be the Walmart greeter and nothing against Walmart greeter, but it's just so vastly different from what they've experienced. And they didn't know how to translate their skill set into the civilian world. So that's where some of that disconnect came from. Yeah, I can see that being a problem. Once you remove somebody's purpose or, you know, somebody doesn't have anything to work for, then, yeah, then they start resorting to the, the chemicals and then they become difficult to deal with and their family you know, starts dropping away and then it just becomes this, this spiral downward. And sometimes I wonder how much of that can be alleviated just by work programs. And, but Hey, you know, it's, there's a lot that goes into it for sure. Well, yeah. And to the family side, there was that part as you just mentioned, but there's also the part where many times they were enablers. And if you kind of look at it, you know, your son goes off to war, he's 18 years old, 19 years old, and he's going to Iraq or Afghanistan. And you're seeing these images, you know, on the news and all these horrible things that are happening. And your 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 son or daughter's over there. Well, when they come home after they're, some of them are there a year or longer for these deployments, especially in those early days, man, you're just glad they're home. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of I don't understand what they went through, but I kind of get why they're a little angry or drinking more than they used to or whatever. And they would just enable, which just leads to more and worse decisions. And that kind of begins that spiral. So one of the key parts of our organization is to not only serve and help the veteran understand what happened mentally, but to help their family and friends understand what happened mentally to them because they may have both of their arms and legs and, and eyes and they look fine, but something has dramatically changed and we have to help them understand the rewiring of the brain, why they have no filter of what's right and what's wrong anymore and how to lovingly put in some boundaries so that you're not enabling. So that's a big part of what we've had to do through the years. Yeah, that's uh interesting and remarkable as well that you bring in the family. We think about the veteran going into a counselor and talking to somebody, but we don't think about bringing in the family as well because, you know, everybody has something that they can learn. 
Yeah, you know, it was interesting in those very early days, I was speaking to a group and talking about this very thing, you know, what was going on with our veterans coming home from war. And, you know, we always try to save time for Q&A. And at one point, this one lady raises her hand and she says, my son just got home from Iraq and uh, looks great. He's doing great. He wakes up in the middle of the night sometimes screaming. But other than that, he's great. It's (laughs) like, okay, well, did he do that before he went to war? You know, that's a problem. And it's not the end all, but let's start dealing with that now rather than after he starts self-medicating to try to stop all that. So those are some of the things we dealt with in those very early days. Yeah. And you guys have a couple of, of doctors on your team as well. I've noticed you got a pretty large team. I mean, what are some of the specialties of the folks that work with you? So what we do have now is we are, what we've done in the past, I guess you should say, is we have partnered with an organization locally for our residential program. So our residential programs, known as Camp Hope, we're bringing veterans in from every era of war, every military branch. So we've had Korean War veterans here. We've had Vietnam veterans here. Obviously, most of them are post-9-11 guys. But our program is a peer-to-peer program. So it's one vet who's come through the program helping the next vet. That's our model. But through the years, we added a partnership with some licensed professional counselors because once we started dealing with what was going on with their combat-related trauma, it was very eye-opening to me, at least. Probably 75% of the guys who've come into our residential program had some type of childhood abuse, and that ranged in what that actually looked like. But, I mean, I, it was not, and it still is not, uncommon for me to hear, you know, a guy say, yeah, my parents or my mom or you know, my uncle introduced me to alcohol or introduced me to some pretty harsh drugs when I was 10 years old, and I just never stopped. And, of course, physical, sexual abuse, all different kinds of abuse. But if we're going to really help them... <laughs> We had to go back and unpack some of that as well. So that's where we brought in or partnered with licensed professional counseling. What we're doing now is we're bringing that into the organization so we have more control over that. And it's just a lot of it, frankly, is just logistics. Because we the last several years we've been in, we call it the transportation business, moving guys from here to the VA, guys to the, you know, to the clinic, just all kinds of things. So what we're trying to do now is bring all of that onto our campus so that we're not spending as much time and money just simply moving guys, bring it on campus so we can have more control over that. Okay, good. Now That's what we're doing. And I know we're kind of working backwards here, but we, you kind of touched on it, but what Camp Hope is. And then, so what's the the philosophy then? So you, you have vets that help vets who have been through the program before, but kind of how do you approach uh, this whole healing process to begin with? Like kind of like when you, when somebody walks in, they go, okay, here I am at Camp Hope. Like what, what can I expect from you guys? Okay. So when a guy first steps onto our camp as a resident in our program, Roughly the first 30 days, he's going to be, we just simply call it black phase. You are completely shut down from the outside world. No phones, no social media, none of that. It's We are trying to get that individual stabilized and to a place 
where he understands at least a little bit of what's happened to him and his current condition. Even once they come in, they still aren't convinced that they're the ones that are problem and the world's the problem. So we have to kind of get them control. Also, part of that is many times it's the spouse or some family member that is part of the triggering that leads them to a very bad and dangerous place. So we shut all of that down for those first 30 days. And we're really concentrating on stabilizing them, working on getting them where they can understand. And, I'll, you know, many times they, they come in, they've been self-medicating. Some of our Vietnam guys, obviously, been self-medicating for literally for decades. So while they go into a 30-day rehab, if they have that kind of addiction prior to coming to here, we still have a lot of work to do once they get here. So that first 30 days, it's us and them. Then after that, you know, there's phases in our program. There's a, I mean, a red phase, a yellow phase, a green phase, and it all goes through. Let's understand where we're at. Let's start identifying where our issues are, all of them, because many of them also have now a pretty long list of legal issues, financial issues. We need to work through all of that. So our program is designed to be roughly six to eight months in length. But sometimes it lasts up to a year and up to today, one of our guys is graduating at the lengthiest time. I think it's 13 months and four days. It's taken him from the day he stepped in to the day he graduated. So it's not a cookie cutter program, but we are constantly progressing them. And, you know, sometimes it's two steps forward and one step backward. But once they start working through something, they realize something else. And then we've got to back up and deal with that and get them through the process. But it's it's an all-day, everyday program. It starts about 7 o'clock in the morning with some basic chores and clean up, check in. They go into classes throughout the day. They have very purposeful time, downtime, where they are writing or they are sitting around the campfire, and that's where the peer-to-peer really kicks in. So mm-hmm. they hear something in class, and one guy, it may kind of tick them off, and another guy is like, Oh, that helps me understand this. Well, sitting around the fire, they all kind of work their way through that. And that's Mm -hmm. where the peer-to-peer accountability really comes in. In the evenings, we have AA or NA classes. And then we offer some other things along the way. Once they get through into our yellow and green phase, our transition phase, they start working on things like, let's do talk about your resume. Let's take a look at it. They all take the Berkman assessment test. So they all get about an hour spent with the professional going over that Berkman uh, personality assessment. It's a very intense, every aspect of your life. We call it a whole person. It's everything in your life that we're going to talk about. We're going to work through. We're going to ask a lot of questions. And uh, once they get done, they have a lot of tools in the toolbox and a lot of contacts. They probably have a hundred new brothers by the time they walk out of this place that they know they can call if they're contemplating, you know, going back to the bottle or going back to whatever it was they were doing before they got here. So it's very comprehensive. Uh, And again, it is peer to peer, but it is augmented with licensed professional counselors, psychologists, and through the VA psychiatrists as well. Now, just going back to the beginning, you mentioned how a guy could feel like the whole world is against him, that even when he approaches you, he says, 
the world is wrong and it's not me. What sort of approach could you take to change that? How do you get through to a person like that? Is there a, you know, cause I'm thinking like first you want to don't want to blame, but then at some point you have to give them some tough love and the truth. How do you do that in the beginning? Like if somebody's really that angry and they're like, I don't think I should be here, but I was told to go here by my family and I'm just trying to make them happy. And I really don't like you guys very much. What is one little thing you can do to kind of go, okay, let's take this first step. What would that first step be? Because we all know somebody who's angry at the world. I'm just trying to think for myself how I can diffuse a few people in my life. You know, what's something I could do? For us, that's the peer to peer. So when they come in, they are met by our transition or our outreach team. And they handle the process. I mean, we're going through their bags, making sure they're not bringing in paraphernalia. They're turning in their cell phones. We're going through all of that when they first come in. It's a two or three hour process when they first get in. And yeah, some of them are angry and some of them are, they're going to say, you know, I'm here because of my wife, just like you said. Some of them here because the judge gave me an option to do this instead of going to jail. It's the only reason I'm Mm -hmm. here. Every single time the guy on the other side of that desk, every single time, either he's been through that or the guy sitting next to him has been through that. And that's where it works. Like, yeah, I was sitting in that chair where you're sitting a year and a half ago. And I felt Mm -hmm. the exact same thing you just said. And that is the power of our peer to peer program and why it works so well is there's nothing they can say that we haven't already dealt with on this campus, that somebody in our program, somebody on our staff hasn't already walked through that, including losing their family. They can't see their kids. They've got their restraint orders. We have staff that's gone through every single bit of that and can take away every single one of those excuses. They don't always listen, but they are always hearing, hey, I've been exactly where you are and now look where I'm at. So that's the power of what we do. It sounds like it's somebody who's who's like you. It's almost like human beings. We don't <laughs> often don't listen to logic, but as soon as we you know, we're presented with somebody who is on our team, you know, like they're like us in wh- whatever way, they could say the exact same thing that that some other person said who doesn't look like me or doesn't hasn't been through what I've been through. But for some reason, if it's somebody who is who's like me, then then it does get through. So yeah, I think the the peer to peer thing is uh, definitely a, a good tactic. And yeah, that's uh, it's hard because there you know there are people in, in my life who I've not been through the same thing as them, but I can tell they're doing something wrong. And if I say it, it's not gonna. It's not going to work, but if somebody who's like them says it, then it will work. And so, right, I guess and you got to find that find that person. <laughs> yeah, I do that constantly, and I'm, of course I'm old enough now. I've, I've been through enough experiences. I, when I come across something that I personally haven't experienced many times, in fact, somebody reached out to me this week. They had lost their teenage son to uh, to addiction, and mm. like, I know you. I love you. I pray for you. I will do everything I can to encourage you and walk through the process of what I call the business of death, funeral homes and all that kind of stuff. I'll do all that I can with you. But what I really want to do is connect you to a friend of mine that Mm -hmm. has also lost a child to to addiction. And so that's what I do. I just am constantly dragging other people in into these opportunities to help change people's lives. And truthfully, You know, you don't have to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And sometimes you don't have to be like in the beginning days. I wasn't the guy 
that was up here. I've never been to Iraq or Afghanistan, never been to any of those places, or never put on the uniform of the country. But what I could do is listen, not be judgmental, and just, hey, man, I don't understand it, but I want to, you know, as much as you want to share, I want to hear. And, you know, I, I can't fix it for you, but I want to try to walk through this with you. Anyone yeah. and everyone can do that and at least make the offer. But the key is t- to be listening and to not express being judgmental, because that's where a lot of these guys struggled when they came back, whether they went to the VA or tried telling a friend. It's when somebody starts anything that they feel is being judgmental of what they had to do in war, that triggered an awful lot of anger. So I tell people, man, just let them know you're there to listen. And at some point in time, they either talk to you or they're going to talk to somebody. And when they do start to talk, man, just let them know you care. And man, I don't understand it, but I'm here for you. Well, I think also talking is just a way for the person to to think through things. So talking is sort of a way of thinking out loud. And by talking, you're trying to solve the problem yourself. And when a person interrupts it or they try to insert solutions too soon, you're almost disrupting the process of that person trying to figure out their own problem. And so I think that can be triggering as well. And so, yeah, there is a time in the beginning where it's just, hey, just listen, be there, say, hey, I'm, I'm here for you. And then when that person's ready to move on to the solutions phase, then it's like, all right, you know, let's, let's figure this out. Here's a possible solution. What do you think? But yeah, in the beginning, you know, it's, it's tough because you have to just kind of be a sponge, you know, while that person just explains their problem. Yeah, you have to because it's, 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 yeah. uh, it can get really, really dark. The positive to that is, you know, they wouldn't be telling you that if they didn't have some level of trust. Mm, good point. So, you know, take that as a win and like, yeah. so just listen and don't, don't interrupt. Don't say a word. Just listen. Now, what about uh, just, you kind of touched on it earlier, but uh, just a couple of success stories from Camp Hope. Can you, oh. what are some really good ones off the top of your mind? <laughs> there are a lot, but let's, let's see. Yeah. We brought a guy in from Alabama. He was a, a young Marine, married, and like many, as I mentioned already, when he came home, he wanted to continue to serve. So he went and became a firefighter, a small town out in Alabama. His anger and use of alcohol became a problem enough to for you know everybody working around to realize it was a problem. Certainly his wife realized that she didn't have a clue what to do, but his chief at his department really cared about him and really felt like, you know, this kid's worth, you know, trying to help. So he did some investigation, found us. We brought that guy in. And the problem we do have sometimes with the link of our program is law enforcement, first responders, many times, you know, they can do a 30 day program, but, and when we're talking six to eight months, they, they kind of, we can't do that. But this chief told this guy, you stay as long as you need to stay. So he completed the program, completely changed his life, went back home. So he's going back to his family and he's going back to this fire department. So just think about that. Like this kid could have probably gone to jail. He's instead his chief cared enough about this young man to bring him here. We flew him in, did the work with him, 
He goes home. He's not only going back in as a healthier father to his children, which I think we all have seen plenty of reports and news stories of the impact of not having the father in the home, what that does to the children, all the the results of that, the negative results of that. But when we put a healthy father back into that home, but not only that, we're putting a first responder back into his community where he is positively impacting and serving his community. And it didn't cost the fire department anything. It didn't cost the federal taxpayer anything. This guy came through a program for absolutely free, completely changed his life and went back, not only going back alive, but a completely changed man and making a positive impact on his community. So there's one. I'll tell you another story. This is a Vietnam vet that came through hmm. right after this thing called COVID. I don't know if you've heard of COVID or not, but it was kind of a thing hmm. a couple of years ago. But yeah. uh, he, uh, you know, Vietnam, more than 50 years of self-medicating destroying every relationship he'd ever been in and uh, certainly destroying relationship with his kids. Finally, one of his kids talked him into getting some kind of help. So he went to his local VA, which was the VA in Atlanta. And he started going to some weekly support groups that they ran, that are, at least in theory, or at least somewhat similar to ours. It was effective enough that he had just learned to set aside his his self-medicating, his addiction. 9-11 happens. The VA calls him and says, hey, COVID, you can't come back. So they shut down those groups. They didn't even offer, hey, let's find another place or let's meet outdoors. Nothing. They just completely kicked him out. So you mean when COVID happened? Yeah, when COVID happened. Yeah. Yeah. So when I think about that, like we all know the stories of Vietnam veterans and what happened when they came home. As if that's not evil enough, this guy finally reaches out, which is what the VA tells them to do. He finally reaches out, starts getting help, and then they kick him back out again. And now he doesn't know what to do. So he reverts to the only thing he did know, which is to go back to his addiction. So two weeks Mm -hmm. later, the VA there had to take him in because of his addiction and his suicidal ideation. So then he's in the psych ward. Now, mm-hmm. you know, they still want to get rid of him because of COVID. So this social worker tells him about a program in, somewhere in Florida. And she started telling him about it. And she said it was two weeks long. And he just started chuckling. It, big old burly fella. He just starts chuckling. He says, honey, I've been doing this for five decades. I don't think a two-week program is going to cut it. (laughs) And she goes, well, there's a place in Texas. I don't know a lot about it, but I do know it's called Camp Hope. It's a faith-based program, and it's uh, six months to eight months long. And he said, how do I get there? We had him in our program within two days of that conversation. It took him a year to graduate our program. But he's now been home for a year, and I talk to him probably at least once a week or really close to it. And he, uh, we've basically helped him rebuild his little house, his you know sixty-year-old house that he was living in, run down, the roof had holes in it. We basically helped him rebuild his house, but he has been rebuilding his relationship with his family. And he now has some of his grandkids actually living 
with him in his house. Uh, he's reconnected with all of his children. And mm-hmm. he's got a physical issue that he's trying to work through right now, but he wants to to actually come back to work for us and to help serve the Vietnam veteran community. But mm-hmm. again, here's a guy that, you know, it's, it, it's truly heartbreaking when I think of 50 plus years of carrying all that guilt around, adding to mm-hmm. it all the addiction and all the rage and all the, you know, the very detrimental effects upon his family. That's heartbreaking. But to see what he's doing today and how happy he is today, every time I talk to him, he's got a smile on his face. He's happy with life again. It's enjoyable again. He's got some physical pain, but he's working through that. And he's excited every day he wakes up to get face uh, the chance to face a new day. And, you know, you can't put a price tag on that. And you can't buy that at Amazon.com. It, it just doesn't happen. It takes time and it takes work. So those are a couple of stories. And I could tell stories all day long about what's going on mm-hmm. here and, and our staff. And But uh, it's been pretty incredible get, to get to see some extreme life change. Some of our staff, I mean, we'll, they, by all rights, should be dead. A couple of them had tried to commit suicide by cop. A couple of them have uh, attempted suicide on multiple occasions. And today, now they're not only not dead, but they are happy with life. And they found a purpose greater than they ever believed in trying to help mm-hmm. their brothers come home. So we see a lot, of, a lot of good around here. When there's a lot of darkness, when you turn on the news, there's a lot of good happening at this little place called Camp Hope. Yeah. Well, number one, turning off the news and, and taking away the phones. I think that's a really great <laughs> yeah. first step. I mean, hell, I think all of us could do that. And I don't watch really the local news. Uh, I just, I refuse yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think... Um, I, that that kind of gave me a chuckle. They're like, well, the first thing we do is we take away the phones and we take away any you know, connection to the the outside. I know you obviously you want to reconnect with the outside world. It's not a permanent thing, but just shutting down, you know, all the noise. I think we could all do that. I also like how you have a great story about a Vietnam vet. I mean, you know, I'm the post 9-11 generation mm-hmm. and and we have it so good compared to the the folks in the past, especially the Vietnam vets. I mean, you know, we have a ton of services and I think most people who are my age and younger know that the services are out there. They just have to take it upon themselves to, to go do it. But a lot of guys from that man's generation didn't know it was there. And to think of the, we lost what, I don't know, 50,000 American soldiers in Vietnam and, you know, 10 times as many as the Iraq Afghanistan conflicts. And it just kind of breaks my heart that how many of those folks never got help. And so to see a guy like him, who's, I imagine he's in his seventies yes, and he's able to turn his life around, you know, if he can do it, you know, then, Hey, let me just add to that a little bit. So yeah, yeah 50, I forget now, 57,000 names on the wall. Yeah. It is widely believed we've lost more than 250,000 Vietnam veterans to suicide since coming home. So, you know, roughly four times that have have died by their own hands. So that's one thing. But, uh, you know, back to Levi, I interviewed him. People want to check out our YouTube channel, PTSD USA. We've got tons of videos on there. Most of them are short. They're two or three minute 
interviews when a guy graduates and gives a little bit of his story, but some of them are lengthy. Like I, I did about a, I think on YouTube, it's about a 30 minute version interviewing this gentleman. His name's Levi. And he just said, look, the way I felt was the VA wanted me to die. They just, they wanted to get my name off the rolls. They wanted to get the piece of paper off their desk. They would have been happier if I had just died. That's how he felt. Now, whether it's true or not, you know, that can all be debated. And that's, I'm not here to advocate that. I'm just saying that's how he felt. So we had to get him from feeling like the world just wanted him to die to no, 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 we want you here. And, you know, last year, a little over a year ago now, we finally pulled out of Afghanistan and there was all kinds of chaos around that. It really, really angered a lot of Afghanistan veterans and they felt like their service there had all been dishonored by the way it all went down. And what was interesting on this campus, while those guys were feeling that anger, there are also some Vietnam vets here that have been in the program and could look them in the eye and say, that's exactly how I felt with Vietnam and the way we pulled out of Vietnam. So they were there to tell them, first of all, you don't want to be angry for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. But second of all, you're not the first one to feel this. And frankly, you're not going to be the last to feel this. So let's talk about it. And that gave our Vietnam vets a great opportunity to pour back into this younger generation. And it was Mm -hmm. a magnificent thing to see. I hated it that any of them had gone through that experience. It's kind of like Camp Hope. I Mm -hmm. hate the fact that it even needs to exist. But because of reality, I'm thrilled to death that it is. I'm thrilled to death that we had some Vietnam vets here to speak some truth from experience into these younger guys. It was an amazing thing to watch. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's um, I hate to call it a silver lining, but you know, for the guys in that generation, the Vietnam generation that went through so much and were abandoned and felt like they had no voice for so long. Now they're like, oh, wait a minute. Now I do have a purpose. I can help these guys from the Iraq, Afghanistan generation. I know what they're feeling and I can impart some lessons on them. So that's, that's great. That's great that, you know, in that dark period, they're able to find a purpose in a, in a, in a path forward. So that's, and that helps everybody. Yeah. And they definitely have a passion to, yeah. to reach the fellow Vietnam vets. Cause as you alluded to, they feel very, very much alone. Yeah. It's sad. Now, now you have a, we talked about earlier about the suicide rate. You said, Hey, we could touch on that. Now, can you kind of get into that? Cause we hear about the 22 per day. I have no idea. I've never actually researched actual number, but what's your knowledge in terms of the veteran suicide rate and how we're doing and how these, um, programs are having an impact. Sure. The 22 a day number became synonymous with Vietnam veterans back about 2017. It was the VA's best guess. And it truly was a guess. And since then, they have kind of refined how they go about that number. This past year, they actually reduced it down to 16. Here's the problem with the number. One, there's a number of veterans, a large percentage of veterans who've never registered 
with the VA. They despise it. They don't want anything to do with it. There's been too many news stories. They, they just they don't want to be associated with it. So there are many veterans who have died, you know, by multiple causes, of course, but the VA has no way of tracking them. About four days after the VA announced that the number was 16, another report came out by a, a nonprofit that had partnered with the University of Alabama and Duke University. What they did is they took the every single death record from eight different states across five years. Uh, just that thought is like daunting to me. That's that's an awful lot of death records to investigate. But what yeah. they found is their talking points coming out of it was the number is probably closer to 44 every single day. And the way they wow. described some of the massive difference is certainly understandable. Some of it's like what I've already mentioned is, you know, the VA had no way of knowing that this person was an end, was a veteran. Second thing, a smaller percentage and somewhat eye-opening, I think, to most civilians. There are some who raised their hand, took the oath, put the uniform on, went and served, but got a kind of discharge that they are not recognized by the VA as a veteran. So while that's a smaller percentage of the population, the percentage of tragedies and horrific numbers are very high within that population because they feel like they just got used and abused and then kicked out. The other part of that, which is I think becomes very understandable, it is difficult to determine, you know, was it intentional suicide? Was it an accident? There are a number mm. of those situations. And the way those are determined can change literally from county to county, nevertheless, state to state. So what may be determined as, you know, an overdose, uh, accidental overdose versus a suicide can change literally depending on what side of the street you live on. Mm. So what they came up with was that number of 44. And they said, we don't know that all 44 of those were necessarily intentional suicides. What we do know is all 44 of those every single day were preventable. And that's kind of where they come up with that number. But they did come across an awful lot of the population that had died by suicide that the VA did not recognize, whether it was because they just didn't recognize their discharge status or they weren't registered with the VA and they just didn't know they were a veteran. Wherever the number is, our belief is it's much higher than 16 and probably closer to the 44 than it is the 16. We've dealt with a number of, you know, one-off situations of people that we've known, people that we've tried to reach, that we know what the situation was, but the coroner, for whatever reason, you know, describes it as an accident or whatever. And that's yeah. fine. We kind of understand it. Whatever the number is, it's way too high. And we have to do everything we can to show our veterans and their families there's somebody out here that does care and is advocating for them and has prepared a place and a program to help them change their life and not only save their life, but to change it. Uh, that's the message we want to get out. Yeah. I, mean, I imagine trying to calculate all those numbers is just too daunting, but I can see a difference between intentional suicide and just a person who's living such a dangerous and damaging lifestyle because of their trauma. 
you know, they're, they're whatever, they're driving fast, they're, they're drinking all the time, they're doing just dangerous, getting in fights, who knows, like where maybe it's not a, a suicide, but it's something that's so know, we have a definitely guy on our, damaging, intentionally damaging to themselves. Yeah, we have a guy on our staff today that fortunately did not succeed in what he was trying to accomplish, but he had a little girl and he didn't want, he wanted his life to end, but he didn't want her to live her whole life saying her dad committed suicide. So his plan, this is how messed up his brain was at the time. His plan was if he'd go to enough bars in Houston and drink enough and use enough and tick off enough people that someone would take him out. And in his mind, that made it a much better, you know, his daughter could be proud of him instead of ashamed about him. That's a pretty dark place mentally to be, but that's where he was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's far more common actually than than we'd like to admit. I mean, I think you know, say what you want about suicide, but it's like it definitely like I'm in pain. I'm going to do this, and everything else is like I th- think usually the life is much more complicated and, and nuanced, and people have all sorts of feelings. And I think that's much more common is what your uh, your coworker, your your friend is doing. And you know, how do we capture that in the numbers? I I don't know. Yeah. You know, so you know. We can talk about numbers all day long, and some yeah. people love to talk about them. What I do know is I've talked to too many moms when they got a phone call they should never, ever get. Yeah. And we have to do everything we can. And really, the first step is, thankfully, what you're doing right now is helping us get the word out. And, uh, hey, look, we know we're not the only thing we're not the answer to every possible scenario that goes on but we do want people to know we are here we've had more than 1700 veterans come through this program we've seen an awful lot of life change it's absolutely free cost them nothing cost their families nothing we have to let the world know this is happening and it might be a neighbor it might be somebody in the next cubicle at their office it could be anyone and they don't even know they're, they're a veteran, but we've got to get people aware it's still happening today. The numbers are horrific. And if we just all will work together and everyone do their little part, then we can make a, a dramatic impact in what's going on in our veteran community. Now, what about women? Do you have any women that go through the program? Because we all think of kind of men having this problem, but I'd imagine there's been a couple of women at least. Have you ever had that situation? Oh, sure. And truthfully, in our uh, campus here in Houston, in the early days, we did have a house built with the intention of serving the female veteran population. For a lot of reasons, it just doesn't work. We help some folks, but... Mm -hmm. The female veteran population, first of all, is a very small percentage compared to the male. So if you had two or three females here, and at the time we might have had 30 males, it was just a a problem because Mm -hmm. most of these, in fact, every single female veteran that was here not only had PTSD, but they had MST, which is military sexual trauma. So it just yeah. it just wasn't going to work you long range. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of it's well, it's not kind of it is very much on our radar. We know it's an issue and we want to be a part of addressing that. 
we just, you know, our bandwidth is <laughs> we're right. stretching it, it everywhere we possibly can to try to deal with what's going on today. We're getting ready to build a couple of buildings and we're looking for a second campus location right now. So we're stretching ourselves way beyond being stretched, especially with COVID mm-hmm. and all the things that have happened, inflation, all those sorts of things. But we definitely know it's an issue and we want to be a part of addressing that. Now that you were talking through this, I'm like, yeah, that would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, but, you know, I'm sure there are many organizations out there that will help women and we'll talk about them and have them on as well. And I'm sure you guys, if if uh, a woman did need help, you could uh, point her in the right direction. Yes. And, so. you know, outside of the residential portion, our support groups that we run, our warrior groups, we have had and do have female veterans in those groups. So they've been in combat, they have combat-related trauma, they are welcome into those groups, and we've been able to see some really good life change happen there as well. So they have a support here, it's just not in the residential program. Okay, good. Now, um, so how can people help? How can we contribute and help you guys out? Well, there are a multitude of ways. One Mm -hmm. is most everybody's on social media these days, if they just follow us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, our website, ptsdusa.org, our Twitter handle, Facebook, ptsdusa. Just follow us and share our stories because you never know who might come across it for the first time. Or the first time they see it, they may not think anything about it. But then the third time they recognize, hey, there's this fella at work that could probably use a resource like this. So we really encourage people just at least follow us, learn about what's going on and share our story. Obviously, second to that, you know, it it costs money to do what we do. We get something from the electric company every month and it's not a thank you note for serving our vets. (laughs) It's a really big bill. I mean, you know, we've got about a hundred guys living here right now. So you can imagine just housing, feeding and all the things that come along with that. It's not cheap. Like every other nonprofit in the world, we need people who can come along and contribute financially and can be as small or as big. It's not about the dollar amount. It's just if we all do what we can, it, it all gets taken care of. But then another way is, you know, in our residential program here, we have a lot of people. We have about two and a half million dollars the last couple of years in what we call in-kind donations. And that's everything from people going on Amazon and just buying, you know, 30 pair of underwear or 50 pair of socks or, you know, sending over 10 cases of, of water or five cases of laundry soap, you know, whatever it takes to run your household inside and out from mm-hmm. toilet paper and light bulbs to ant killer. We have a lot of ants in Texas, you know, whatever it takes to run your house. We need at times about 80. Not that we're asking anybody to buy 80 of anything, but just get the point across. Whatever it takes to run your place, we need a lot of it to run our place. So a lot of folks will have stuff shipped, Walmart, UPS, Amazon. And locally, we have a lot of people that just pick up extra things while they're at the store and they'll come to our campus and drop it off. So there's a lot of ways to support what we do. Companies, you know, employees, programs will do different fundraiser events for us every year. All those things, some of them are small, some of them are, you know, $100,000. It, it kind of runs the gamut there, but there's a lot of ways to get involved. Our website is, uh, you know, a way to get connected with all that. And our social media is a way to stay up with 
you know, the day-to-day of what goes on around here. Well, good. And then last and hardest question, how are you doing, David? You lead this organization. <laughs> You're dealing with a lot of guys in rough positions. How are you holding up? Do you have help? Are you, you doing okay? You know, I know it sounds weird, but every single day, on the days when I feel a little bit, mm, this is heavy, <laughs> yeah. all I have to do is walk out of my office and walk onto our campus. It's a little shotgun, five-acre campus, one little street walking down the middle of it. I look around, I see all these just amazing things happening in people's lives. And yeah, I see some people who are angry and, you know, they're frustrated. And But I see the change happen from day to day. And just being able to see that is kind of the fuel for my fire. And I have nothing but gratitude. I will tell you, when COVID hit and the world shut down, it was a major impact on this place. Income, you know, it was like just turning off the water spigot. At the same time, the demand for our services skyrocketed. But I would just say our staff came through and did some amazing things uh, that no one could have ever imagined we would have to do. But we figured out a way to get it done. And our community was a big part of that. But uh, yeah, it gets heavy from time to time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't win every single time, and we have lost a few good brothers along the way, and that weighs heavy on all of us. But we want to honor them and their life and do the very best we can to help save the next one. So we grieve it, and then we remember as we move on and learn every lesson we can trying to help the next brother. All right. Well, David Malsby, thanks so much for coming on. You're saving lives thousands of them and um, you're going to continue doing great work and thanks so much for coming on the show and we'll we'll keep in contact and contribute and do what we can okay thanks very much for the opportunity man appreciate it all right david thank you that's it my friends thanks for listening if you like the content and want to help grow this show please click in a five-star rating and friendly comment on your podcast app it's the best thing you can do And if you want to learn more about me and my guests, head over to gregcrino.com and subscribe to my newsletter. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Finally, if you have any ideas for the show or comments for me, send an email to gregcrinoshow at gmail.com. Take care and see you on the next episode.